think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 39, the 40th episode of The Boys in Short Pants. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Aiton Renville. And uh, this week we have an action-packed special for you, including uh, lots of travel, clusters of various kinds, <laughs> uh, in high drama, uh, crime. We, we've got it all. We've got it all here at The Boys in Short Pants. This, this is quite the pitch you're making. It is. Uh, we'll for, see if, for the people already listening. Let's see if we can deliver. Um, so starting off this week, uh, we'll talk about the uh, Prime Minister's trip to India, which has been uh, long in the cards. I think uh, this is his first visit officially to India since he's become Prime Minister. I think that's correct. That's fine. If we're not, people can just yell at us. Uh, it seems to be certainly, if it is not his first trip, it's certainly the trip that's gotten the most coverage so far. Um, it seems to have turned into a bit of a problem in one sense, as Justin Trudeau has kind of done what Justin Trudeau does and misspoken when talking about really large sums of money. Uh, I think that's fair. Um, I think what you're referring to is sort of the recent screw-up this morning, uh, where he was quoted as referring to a billion dollars in money coming to Canada. Yes. Which could not be further from the truth. No, he was referring to a billion dollars in trade, but which amounted to net outflow of $750 million, roughly, and a net inflow of about $250 million. Leveling to money leaving the country. <laughs> yeah. Rather than investment in the country, which I think is... Uh, what, Typically what you want to be. What he was trying to pitch... Um, so it's sort of ironic that that's what he messed up. And it was really good to see all the, you know, corrections in the stories that basically had to entirely change the flavor of the story as a result. I think even the Canadian press piece uh, post-correction was a little sassy on their uh, yes. on their take. Um, so beyond, beyond the verbal gaffe... Um, I Which think, is like basically a footnote at this point, I mean. Yeah, more so. I, I think what everyone is sort of gossiping about in terms of the trip is whether or not he is being snubbed by the Indian government. Yes. Um, and a lot of people are saying that he is, that Modi didn't meet him at the airport, that they sent a junior minister of state, I believe, for agriculture. Yeah. Um, that he hasn't met him yet. He's only meeting him on the last day of the trip. And right. they're pointing to sort of a, a series of... Uh, evidence to to build this case. Yeah. So so David Aiken pointed out on Twitter that for the airport thing that Harper was not met at the airport by the prime minister of the time either. But you you added, well, the, you added, added the, the other stuff. Yeah. Quali- no, you added the excellent qualifier there that it was the yes president at the time prime minister or prime minister at the time rather. Yes. Um, and then people have pointed to instances where Modi has met a lot of people at the airport, like Patrick Brown, probably. <laughs> <laughs> we actually, I don't know if that's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm surprised, but perhaps no longer. Um, um, so but, take it as you will. I think yeah. the general consensus is that this trip is a bit of a dud, aside from the pictures of Trudeau and his uh, photogenic family wearing, you know, cultural garb. I think is perhaps the most significant takeaway. Well, they had a great shot of Taj Mahal. That's why, there you go. Oh, there you go. Uh, Well, I think there's, it's a pattern kind of worth discussing. First of all, I think some context to why Modi might be seen to be snubbing him. Uh, Modi is a member of the BJP, whose full name I'm not going to attempt to pronounce on this show. Uh, But it is a predominantly Hindu nationalist party. So fairly right wing and fairly Hindu chauvinist when it comes to the sort of politics of diversity of religion and culture in India. Uh, the Congress Party, which has sort of dominated in politics since independence, 
is more of a secular center-left party that sort of stagnated into kind of dynastic petty corruption. Uh, so much like our own governing liberals, in fact. This is liberals um, are communist impression. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, no, but that, that's sort of the context for that. Is is the BJP is is a pretty pretty reasonably right wing party uh, that does not take kindly to uh, India's ethnic and religious minorities. Narendra Modi, as governor of uh, the province of state, excuse me, the state of Gujarat in northwestern India may have been responsible for significant massacres of the Muslim minority in that in that state uh, in the early 2000s in a series of riots that left thousands of people dead. So people, when he took power, were a little concerned by that sort of uh, perhaps murderous streak. Um, so I'm, and I'm, the, I'm just going to concede I know absolutely yeah, the, nothing the, on this topic, the, so I, I can't prefer... For, okay. uh, Present the, a coherent defense. The international the press other. was much more focused on the sort of Modi the liberal reformer as they are with anybody who says they're going to cut taxes. Um, you know, Emmanuel Macron was also the liberal reformer. Duterte probably at some point was the liberal <laughs> reformer who gets results. So, I mean, whatever, right? Like Pinochet, like they, they love these guys. They don't really care about the body count at all uh, as long as taxes are low. Uh, sorry, that's my editorializing there a little bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, but at any rate, so the context for this too is that... You, you uh, keep that attitude up, you're getting locked in the next uh, luxury hotel on your next trip <laughs> <laughs> to Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to take a trip there anytime soon. I don't think I would uh, do too well there. Um, the part of the problem too, for from the point of view of, of Modi's government, is that um, Trudeau's cabinet has a ton of Sikhs in it, and this has a sort of... Uh, uh, like a tinge of of sort of Sikh separatism, though I don't think there's actually really anything to that in the case of Trudeau's cabinet. Uh, that seems to be the, the prevailing conspiracy theory among the Indian Hindu right. That was, uh, sorry, <laughs> the intern uh, is, is present with us again, so you may hear from him time to time until Dem- I feed him. Demanding his ramen noodles. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I hesitate to add too much flavor to this conversation because the intricacies of Indian politics are not something that uh, So I, I'll I pivot am... away from that then. Go and, ahead. And towards what seems to be a recurring pattern with Trudeau's international visits, which is that apart from the sort of like great shots with his family and you know fawning media coverage of you know especially in the foreign press he typically doesn't tend to actually pull these things off very well there was a trip with china a while back where he sort of had this bizarre press conference with the the chinese premier that you know ended with basically a non-announcement he had that bizarre trip to the asian or the southeast asian economic organization that also ended bizarrely yes um yeah was was that the tpp one yes though those two were together yes um yeah so the tpp one went bust there was the infamous photo of him sort of arguing or uh, not at the table arguing in the back room with the chinese prime minister or a uh, japanese prime minister rather yeah um you rightly point out india and china um perhaps the better ones recently have been with uh, North American allies mm-hmm. in the United States. I think generally people have felt that he's done a good job in the uh, engagement strategy with NAFTA that not only Trudeau but many of his senior ministers have done. Um, they've certainly carpet bombed the United States in terms of presence there. 
I think the agriculture minister is somewhere there right now. It seems like every, you know, two days, a new minister is flying to the United States to speak to a congressman yeah. to really push them on NAFTA. So I think that's one area where they've certainly done well. Yeah, I think that's really like a fighting for survival kind of thing where they've had to do well. Um, but I, I do think you rightly point out um, that Trudeau, especially in some of the more recent bilateral yeah. um, international engagements, has not done as well. Um, especially when you're trying to push these countries to do things that they don't want to do. I yeah. think he's been rather unsuccessful at that. Yeah. Um, I think it's easier to be successful at things like G7, G20 meetings, where you come out of it with, you know, airy commitments. And in this day and age, everyone is more focused about managing Trump than yeah. about the uh, than about Trudeau and what Canada is pushing for. So I think it's really easy for Canada to play a win on those ones. Yeah. But it's a little harder when it's one-on-one. As opposed to, you know, everyone in the room versus Trump. Yeah. Can I pivot back to India for one quick second? No. Uh, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely forbidden. So I, I only want to come back to it just because it's worth noting that um, all the liberal MPs of, of Indian descent have gone with him. Yes. Um, so it, there was a famous anecdote a couple years ago, and I, I honestly don't remember who the MP was, so you'll have to forgive me on this. But one of the MP conservative MPs who went on Stephen Harper's trip to Israel with him... Uh, like sort of jostled people to get a shot with uh the prime minister benjamin oh at the west wall yeah and said uh this famously said this is the re-election right was the picture of him and this sort of oh yeah an instructive antidote just in saying anecdote excuse me just in saying that this sort of uh when you come from a, a sort of ethnic or religious community and you go to you know the homeland whatever that happens to be there's often a great political value in being seen with the senior political leadership of that country or at a significant site of some kind or both, as the case was in that guy's case. I Once again, I'm very sorry. I don't remember who that was. Someone can yell at me later about this. Um, but yeah, just to note that that like he seems to recognize the value of these things for some of his incumbent MPs uh, and has taken them along to sort of give them some extra political capital for their re-elections. Yeah, for sure. I mean, why, why wouldn't you take them? What, what do you have to lose? Uh, I mean, possibly, you know, the more fat people you throw in there, the more likely there is to be some sort of gaffe of some kind. But that's pretty low risk if you, you know, brief your people and make sure they're not getting out of control. Yeah, I, I won't be too concerned about that. Yeah. They're largely just potted plants when the PM's in the room. <laughs> that is extremely true. So next on the agenda for today is the recent $950 million uh, announcement of the final winners of the Supercluster reality show. Uh, that the liberals have been sort of undertaking for the last year. So to, to summarize quickly, the superclusters are a key part of the government's sort of innovation strategy, which is kind of their like macroeconomic vision of how they can boost labor productivity and capital productivity through quote unquote innovation, which is the secret sauce that makes economies uh, do well these days. Um, they've done this through a sort of reasonably closely targeted uh, $950 million investment in five regional super clusters, each targeting a different sort of sector of the economy. Would you not take issue? Yeah, no, you're fine. Okay. No, no. <laughs> keep going, keep you're, going. you're kind of making faces. Um, and these are sort of given out to businesses. I just naturally cringe every time you say the word super cluster. Well, that's entirely fair, yes. Uh, but yeah, these are given out to businesses, um, and they're left to do with that money kind of as they will. No, I don't. I don't. <laughs> well, it's towards innovation, like supporting no, no, no. activities. I, I don't think that's a fair characterization. Okay, go as, ahead. as anyone who's been in and around government, when government hands out money 
often has to go through the treasury board submission process and it's yes. fairly narrowly circumscribed as to how that money is used. I, okay. I, I don't quote me on that for the rest of my life because I'm sure there's examples of yeah. government giving nearly no strings attached money, but I, I don't suspect this is one of them. No, well, okay, yeah, perhaps that's a bit uncharitable, but for any rate, it is for innovation activities as described, I think, by the companies. So there's, there's five clusters that have been announced as winners. And they all represent a region. Yeah, coincidentally. A, a, a particular region of Canada, <laughs> yeah. funnily enough. This merit-based transparent appointments process, of course, resulted in perfectly balanced regional diversity. Yeah, a lot of people have been pointing out uh, that... So, one supercluster went to BC, one went to Saskatchewan, one yeah. went to Ontario, and one went to Quebec. Is that four? Yeah, you missed the Maritimes. four Maritimes, the last one. Yes. With the ocean supercluster. Indeed. Um, yes, each is also sort of regionally appropriate. And, and okay, let's let's better explain the concept of a supercluster first of all. Let, let's give it a, uh, a fair argument in defense of. Okay. Um, so, let oh, here, I'll play proponent for a little bit here. Okay, go ahead. Um, so, the supercluster, the idea of the supercluster, as pointed out by Navdeep Baines, um, during the announcement is to create a minicon sil- a mini silicon valley a minicon valley is actually <laughs> very good <laughs> a minicon valley um, so the idea of this is that there'd be five mini uh, silicon valleys in their sort of respective fields across Canada that would draw in um, with with the supercluster announcement there's dollar for dollar funding matched from the private sector um, with public dollars and so the idea is to get people in an area who are experts. And this builds up sort of the industry in the region. Yeah. That it's sort of using like leveraging network effects and kind of all the, the sort of like yeah. lovely things in the back textbooks, the economics textbook you never read. Yeah. So let's, chapters, let's use the AI uh, supercluster, which I believe is the Quebec-based supercluster in Montreal. Yeah. Um, the idea is that, you know, people would be able to work on a project here and then go across the street and work there. And it would draw in experts and it sort of create a density and eventually it gets to a critical mass and it sort of. A snowball effect and it and it perpetu- perpetuates itself onto the future. Yeah, that is the liberal supercluster dream. Yeah, um, many have been quick to point out that the liberal supercluster sauce might be a little thin. Um, Paul Wells, uh, I thought, had a great piece, sort of picking apart the argument and also highly critical of uh, the supercluster websites. Um, some in particular I think he found to be lacking of detail Shocker. and sort of heavy in airy words and hand-waving. Yeah, Paul Wells has actually been, I think, probably the best prominent journalist working on sort of innovation and science issues for the last couple of years. He's been really, really good under this government uh, with very, very good coverage of the Naylor Report as well. And actually, it's kind of the shadow of the Naylor Report, I think, that really hangs over this. So I, I believe we've talked about it on the show before. But the Naylor Report was the report on fundamental science that was conducted by uh, a panel chaired by the University of Toronto's former president, Dr. David Naylor. He may still be president, whatever. Uh, at any rate, no, he's not. At any rate, prominent academic. Um, and he chaired this report, or this panel that produced a report calling for over a billion dollars in sort of fundamental science money, uh, more basically base funding to the, the, the granting councils to do the sort of basic fundamental research that keeps things going. Uh, the liberal approach has been more targeted toward, and the conservatives before them uh, had been more targeted towards what's called you know, commercial research, stuff that's towards uh, specific applications or applied research. Um, so I think there, there's an interesting contrast here where I think an alternative approach to innovation policy would just be to very, very well-fund fundamental science. So wait, let, let, me, let me pick apart your argument a little here. When was the Naylor report released? 
2015, early 2016? No, I'm sorry. No, no, no. Early 2017. Early 2017? Yes. When was the budget that allocated the Supercluster money? Uh, right after that. Right after that. Yeah. So on this budget, I think one thing to look for is going to be so yes. this is and the, the and first it does actual sound, Yeah, and it does sound window. like they will be they will be probably putting some nailer money forward from what it, what we're hearing. Yeah, so I think it perhaps while I uh, disagree with the corporate welfare aspects of the whole exercise. Yeah. I, I'm not sure the comparison um, of saying nailer and or corporate welfare innovation money is really mutually, or mutually exclusive for that matter yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, because of the timing it, it wasn't you know nailer versus supercluster yeah. I, I think we might see supercluster this year or last year i guess i'll call it and then nailer in a week and a half yeah we maybe. will see uh, i really hope there will be nailer money i think that's that's a surer bet in some ways um i think also it's worth noting that you know I, the alternatives that we're not talking about to um to sort of innovate like is there a conservative sort of macro approach to this kind of thing or one that you would personally feel more comfortable with if you're not comfortable speaking for the party on that to what kind of thing specifically to like the super cluster thing like if, if the teleconservative government like we need more innovation in the economy like what's the conservative party come back with reduce barriers okay what does that mean like i imagine that's lower taxes well lower taxes regulation i think is there a problem um, that cannot be solved by lowering taxes and <laughs> repealing regulations? I, I think uh, a certain segment of the conservative party perhaps not all of it would very much be in support of uh immigration and trying to make the country more appealing in okay. terms of high-skilled immigration high-skilled labor things along those lines um i think with the united states and sort of international um, labor movement. One of the big things is getting other people's qualifications recognized locally, um, and then having recognize uh, the recognition of credentials across the country. Thing things in terms of labor mobility. I think okay. would be. You guys really just like when you have a hammer, right? Everything looks like nails. Yeah, all. it yeah. really does. Absolutely everything. <laughs> if I said this, say like, well, so what's the conservative solution to childcare? Oh, we got to lower taxes, repeal regulations, <laughs> make it easier for people to, <laughs> to move around the country. It's a. Uh... Am I am I wrong though? I don't know how moving around the country comes well, around. I don't know. Just the interim More temporary foreign work. No, yeah. um, that, that would be a, a very different uh, discussion. But the answer, uh, assuredly, is not large government programming. And I, I think there's a good paper by Milligan about uh, the effects yes, on the children. Effects. Yeah, actually, <laughs> yeah, I actually think, frankly, I think that uh, we have yet to produce a cogent response to that paper. I think it really has some like pretty foundation shaking implications uh like obviously it's like yes it succeeded at the core objective of raising female labor force participation which is good but also Did, negative effects on the development of children which is obviously very bad and should like probably give people pause and more pause than it seems to uh but there you go that's uh that's where we are on that fair enough feel free to look up the paper uh the paper online if, yeah if milligan, you want a little more background milligan 2015 I, yeah it's good yeah, we don't have the time to necessarily go into it. it like today. It's like three years old. Like yeah. it's it's kind of old news. But yeah. on the superclusters, though, I was thinking like, what is the sort of like coherent like social democratic or socialist alternative to the liberal supercluster strategy? And I think people on the left would have less intellectually an issue with the idea of you know using government money to stimulate kind of like research and sort of innovation oriented kind of investment. I think probably where you hit a stumbling block is the orientation of it towards the private sector. 
um, which obviously presents some challenges. Like you have the corporate welfare angle on it. I think, you know, we tend to be pretty sympathetic to that. On the other hand, what do you do? I think people on the left would not be sympathetic to the, oh, well, all you have to do is cut taxes and repeal regulations and you're golden. Um, so I don't know. I, I think it'd be interesting to talk about this. Mariana Matsukato, of course, wrote a great book a couple years ago called The Entrepreneurial State, which kind of covers the development of the role of, of government in the sort of like leading innovations of the last century. So you know, DARPA, uh, the role of government, frankly, in developing Silicon Valley, uh, aerospace sector, of course, it's hugely done. Like we talk a lot about how Montbrandier is a corporate welfare bomb. Boeing is a hundred times worse. Yeah, uh, but or at least has been over the course of its history. Bombardier also threatening to fire 500 workers if yes. because because Montreal didn't buy their subway cars. So. Well, I mean, this is the thing. Here we like, are. Yeah, well, this is the thing, right? It's like if you're gonna give people money, you, this is kind of brings me to the point actually, which is if you're gonna give people money, you may as well own them, right? So like if we had sort of public investment firms that looked into high value added, innovation boosting, quote unquote investments that could be something i'd be happy to look at once again like the details of that would have to be pretty like more nailed down but i think there's pretty encouraging precedent from this like and you can read about book it's very good um but yeah i think that like sort of a more public-led approach if you're gonna go this route is not a terrible one i think once again we're sort of hit with a liberal so worst of both worlds kind of thing here so. I think you mean the gold, the porridge is just Well, right. yes, of course. Um, if it makes both sides angry, it must be correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. I Maybe mean, it's just a bad idea. Who knows? I, I think I think what you said was critical there. If we are going to go this route, and personally I prefer us to see us not go this route. Yeah. And to stay out of corporate welfare and picking winners. And this, because this I mean, is quite literally picking we, winners. I mean, we've always picked winners, one way or another. Uh, whether it's picking winners regionally by just saying that, you know, like various sort of subsidies. Uh, we've been picking winners since the national policy. And I think we should strive to reduce yeah. how much we pick winners as much as possible. On the other hand, if you look at, you know, the national policy, like the tariff walls were terrible for the Maritimes because, you know, they had industrial an industrial base that was basically built on trade with New England. The national policy helped kill off. But you wouldn't have had the development of Ontario and Quebec as an industrial heartland if not for the national policy. I think it's very fair to argue that. Um, so it, there are trade-offs, obviously, and I don't think, you know, strangling the economy of the Maritimes in the cradle was, like, the best move possible <clears throat> under the circumstances. But, it, you know, you do have trade-offs in these things, and there can be very positive spin-offs. I think, you know, most people would say it's probably not the worst thing in the world that Toronto and Montreal are, like, world-leading, you know, industrial and research hubs now in large part due to the sort of, like, development spurred by the national policy. Uh, so, you know, there, there are, yeah, there, there are winners and losers to these things, but there are winners and losers if you don't pick winners and losers. So I think the aversion to doing that is perhaps a little misguided on I, the macro scale. I, I tend to disagree. I don't like to do it at the level of the firm, though, again. <laughs> I would agree with you there. I think, like, picking individual companies to be winners and losers is, is not the best thing. Yeah. But I think a sort of strategic direction on the macro level, not necessarily the worst. Because, I mean, look, we're a small open economy next to an enormous neighbor. Our value add is natural resources, which is, like, declining in value over the sort of medium to long-term horizon, I think fair to say. Um, because oil will become less valuable as it becomes less in demand. But Vaseline, the value of Vaseline is going to skyrocket. <laughs> Are we a natural producer of Vaseline? <laughs> um, well, you know, you know, minerals and, and hydropower and all that, which is good. But 
ultimately, I think human capital is probably the way forward for any sort of small open economy like Canada. If you look at like the Netherlands, like they're a small open economy with very, very few natural resources that has built like enormous wealth off trade, off, you know, science based and its derivatives industries off of manufacturing, uh, also of looting, you know, the East Indies, but... Uh, <laughs> so, what, what I'd say initially is the value of natural resources is going to decline over the medium to long term. Tend to disagree with that. Okay. Um, well, I mean, like, what's the scenario where there's, like, more demand for, like, petroleum products and, like... Petroleum being the only one on that list okay. that loses value over the medium well, to long think term. Well, do you think even, like, even when we're talking about, like, metals... Yeah. As we sort of exhaust the easy-to-get reserves, you're talking about declining sort of like marginal value for dollar there as it becomes more and more expensive to extract. It's similar to the petroleum problem. I, I So not having a full background in the metal mining industry and what metals... Well, like know, it doesn't grow back is the key. No, thing. no, no. It, it doesn't grow back, but we do have renor, uh, renewable industries such as the forestry, the timber, yeah, forestry, tim- that's true. timber industries, wood is not worth agriculture... Um, particularly if you buy into this whole global warming okay, thing. Okay, yeah, but attend the thing with agriculture uh, is that we need fewer and fewer workers to, like, produce yes, an but, acres but worth the, of crops. but the value of the industry is still going to, is probably, is likely going to rise over the long yeah, term. Yeah, but if that goes to, like, as six people As arable land farms. decreases, as, yeah, it, it really depends. Yeah. But make, make that same argument when you talk about the innovation industry and the human capital industries. Yeah. I.e. the tech industry. Your, your I don't necessarily your think tech friend. I don't necessarily think tech is the way forward. Um, or various other. I mean, of the human capital industries, I think tech is by far the most substantial and the largest. And Canada has a blossoming tech industry. When yep. you look at uh, it's lo- it's local companies in Ottawa, well. we yeah. have BlackBerry QNX um, developing automated vehicles just outside of Ottawa. We have Shopify. We have in Ottawa alone, we have sort of a developing mini super cluster of tech. Um, startups. You can't have a mini super cluster. Mini. That's, just, that's just a cluster. <laughs> a mini cluster. Um, so I, I don't know if I, I fully agree with you. I, I think our resources, if Canada can't keep uh, a resource-based economy afloat for you know as long as anyone, I, I think the world no, I is mean, doomed. I, yeah, well, that's fair. No, um, I, I don't mean to say that they will, there will be no resource economy in Canada. I just mean to say that probably at the margins the value will be less there will be fewer jobs like already on the oil sand sites you're seeing like automated trucks and that kind of thing like come yeah on, come they are just doing a pilot yeah. project so with you, automated vehicles in the suncor synchron mines fundamentally with a mine and things like it there are a few jobs in there that you can't automate and not not true okay there are like no that a lot I, of jobs I would actually you can. there are a lot of disagree. jobs you can no no you disagree with that too. in a mine or whatever. So in a in a mine, let's use uh, open. Uh, in fact, let's use. There's two types of mines in Fort McMurray. Uh, there's Seg D. <laughs> oh boy, we're going nuts. Which, which is steam assisted gravity drainage. It's where they inject hot water into the earth and then they drain out the petroleum. Okay. Sauce. Sounds very satisfying. Virtually nothing you can automate there. I mean, you can dr- have an automated car driving the truck, the worker, yeah. I mean, the can, site, but oh, there's there's nothing there. 150 years ago, if you asked a farmer, "What can you automate here?" They probably would have said, "Well, nothing. It's just going to be me and my donkey forever." Like, 
you know no 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 but things there, change there are things you just fundamentally cannot automate and i'm sure farmers 150 years ago said the same and thing. and if you listen to the uh senate standing committee on transportation as and many of us do <laughs> as many of us do and their recent study on uh, automation when you listen to the truckers the truckers and a lot of people pitch the automation of trucking as perhaps a turning well, point. Well, we've talked to, we've talked about this this week, yeah. Uh, a turning point in well, the, human history yeah. as you'll so so the proponent or not the proponents the, the nace or the doom sayers uh, say that when trucking becomes automated, you're going to lose all the trucking jobs, you're going to lose all the ch- um, the truck stop jobs and yeah. all the these networks. Yeah. Uh, perhaps auto parts, depending and, on like, how long. I usually think. Wait, okay, go ahead. Wait on how long the trucks last. Th- things along those lines. But what the truckers say in response is, you can't automate away our job. Yeah, our job includes too many important things that cannot be automated beyond strictly the driving yeah. of the truck. Well, the securing of the load, the protecting of the load. Yes, the paperwork, the X, Y, Z. Yeah. Um, all cannot be removed. So the vision that truckers see for trucking, and I think they're pretty well placed to see this is of a truck driver who's doing less active trucking yes and more just accompanying the load and doing right. and work on the periphery right and like if you talk about the amount of people required to run a large train versus a truck it's like you need someone in every truck you need you know one person for every few cars yeah in a train so it's going to be more like the railway industry where you just need fewer people to do you know a different amount of work so Ultimately, what you're saying is like, or what the trucking industry is saying is, there will be fewer jobs. There will likely be different jobs. I don't. I don't even know if they've necessarily projected fewer. I, I think in some cases they see it uh, as the opposite, but because pop- with population and X, Y, Z, because part of this is convoying and the idea yeah. of how how much convoying is going to remove. And I think in terms of base level automation, so. To go completely off this tangent, one of the really interesting things about uh, convoying and that came up is... So convoying for people who are not familiar with the concept is... Uh, the ability to put trucks, you know, millimeters apart, not okay. really millimeters, but say a meter apart to go down the highway because more fuel efficient, you're reducing drag, things along those lines. Right. And so you, it's it's like a virtual train, basically. Um, so the... One if we're going to do the Rob, if we're going to do the Gilded Age, we're going to do it right. We're bringing <laughs> trains back. Woo! <laughs> one, one of the really interesting points... <laughs> points that came out at committee uh this would have been mid last year um was the different infrastructure you need to allow convoying that if you're going to allow convoying the, the hardest part in the transit in the transition to automated via automated and connected vehicles is the crossover when you have both automated and connected vehicles right. on the road as right. well as dumb cars human error is of course the leading cause of death yeah and and when you combine those two the Odds of miscalculation increase. Right. The computers having to interact with non-computers, all of that becomes very difficult. So it raises the question of whether or not you build parallel infrastructure. Yeah. And parallel infrastructure... You know, there's one country that's actually really pioneering in this. <laughs> the one question about, <laughs> about <laughs> parallel infrastructure is who gets the benefit from it? Uh, and once again... And so the idea is that, say, in Ottawa, we have the 416? 417. 417. Jesus, I've been here four years. You live here, dude. It's it's literally Uh, 10 minutes down the road. The the 417. And so if you create a new lane there just for automated connected vehicles, the people are going to be able... uh, be able to benefit for it are at the high end of society. They're going to be the people... In doing the transition with the Teslas that can do automated and connected, have the automated and connected technology. So there's a lot of questions, a lot of complications that come out 
in the transition. Yeah. And I think a lot of people have been highly optimistic about, you know, uh, Elon Musk connected Tesla uh, I'm doing truck off motions, by the way. is going to replace the trucking industry in five, ten years. I, I don't think that's remotely the case. No. To take this all back, I think wait, wait, anytime, to take this all anytime back. Anytime there's an Elon Musk story, you have to just say to yourself, it's incredibly overrated. <laughs> don't worry about it. To take this all back to the oil sand sites. Um, Which we were at super clusters originally. <laughs> we were at at some point. I think it is fair to say that some of the truck driving jobs, particularly in mines, where you do yes. not have many of these challenges. You don't need parallel infrastructure. You right. can uh, automate all the trucks at once. It's basically closed track, right? Like, yeah. yeah. Closed track, closed loop. And that is the perfect situation yes. for automation. That's yeah. exactly what you want. Yeah. It's the equivalent of... It's, it's effectively just a conveyor belt. Automating right? like, the bumper car yeah. at, at the local uh, Disneyland. Yeah. Um, so that's super easy to do. I don't think many other jobs there are. Okay. I, we will have to see, I guess, once we have, like, fully autonomous robots. I think that's, like, we'll, we'll you know. S- we'll save that for uh, Boys but... in Short Pants episode 572. <laughs> <Yes>. The 573rd <laughs> episode. Yes. Uh, by which time that joke will not have gotten tedious <laughs> yet. Uh, no, but, yeah, I think that was a, a very good conversation about the relative merits of different approaches to innovation policy as well as a long 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 digression on trucks if, which if, is fine if anyone is looking for something to listen to watch the uh the transportation communications uh senate committee hearings on automated connected vehicles they just released their report um some of the meetings are fascinating some are senators asking how seniors will get driver's licenses when automated vehicles are around so. you won't need to <laughs> Ah! Retraining, retraining, retraining. <laughs> okay, so that 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 will that will do us on superclusters. Yes, unless you have a final comment about superclusters. Well, actually, you know, uh, our initial plan was we were going to talk about the politics of superclusters this week, which we actually haven't talked about at all. <laughs> we we were going to do the policy deep dive next week, but I guess we just did that. So that's fine. Um, to do the policy or the politics real quick, I think the reaction has been very bad. Um, I think there have been naysayers in media. Um, I think it's putting it mildly. For sure. And, but that being said, it seemed like a two-day media hit. Yeah. Like, mixed results, two-day media hit. It was announced late last week. That's true. And it sort of dropped off the radar. And once the money flows... It's, if, you're gonna have some happy people. Yeah, there might and there might be some trickle stories of how the money's being spent and things like that. But I think a lot of that will be pushed, you know, past the next election time horizon. Yeah. Uh, so I think in the interim, it's basically. I mean, this should have been a really good story for the liberals. When you're spending a billion dollars on anything, you are sure hoping to get your bang for your buck. I, I don't think they got that. Um, but judging the overall success or failure by of, a two-day media cycle, yeah, yeah, for a billion-dollar spend, I think is certainly premature. Yeah. Um, so I think over the next few years, we'll have to. It'll it'll certainly be something to keep an eye yeah, on. Yeah, I mean, I imagine what it will be. It will be just like any sort of large-scale investment program where you have a couple high-profile busts and a fair few quiet success stories. Yeah, but it's out of five. Yeah. It's, well, no, 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 I just mean in their portfolios. I don't necessarily mean in the, the clusters as a whole. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So for each individual super cluster, you're going to have some things that end up being duds, some that end up working pretty well, some that are runaway successes, probably one or two. I don't know. Okay. We will see. We will see. It'll be pretty fascinating to see how this works out. I think it's a live experiment in industrial policy, the likes of which we have not seen in some time in this country. So, eh. we'll see what happens. Um, Stay tuned. So last weekend was the NDP convention, uh, the first since uh, Tom Mulcair's very, very bad time two years ago in Edmonton. (laughs) 
Uh, I was there for, for most of it. I had to, to duck out at some points, but uh, no, I was there for most of it. Jan, you, you wanted to talk about some things with regard to the ADP convention. Uh, so, let, let me just uh, preface this by saying I have not attended or really watched any policy conventions from any party before. Yeah. Um, and I get that they are generally not the best organized thing, and they're somewhat chaotic, um, as comes with gathering 2,000 people in a room and trying to get everyone to speak their piece. Yes. Um, it struck me watching it that it was a little chaotic. Yeah, um, I, I don't know if it was more so than a liberal or a conservative policy convention would be. It was certainly on par with NDP conventions. Um, to, to sum it, Jagmeet got 90% in his review, which seems really good. Uh, for the NDP, sort of, that they are, you know, all in on the direction that they are yeah. going. I mean, it would be very surprising if he had done worse than that. I mean, he's a freshly elected leader with a lot of goodwill. Like, I think people are, you know, inclined to see, you know, give, I mean, give the guy more than five months, right? Like, it's a... Um, I heard his speech was good um, and was widely accepted. I don't know that the convention itself or what came out of it got much traction, uh, in terms of media coverage and really made a dent on anyone's radar. I think that's still... Conventions don't really tend to. I don't think conventions really are for the people not in the room. And by in the room, I don't necessarily mean physically in the room, but in the room, I mean in the universe of highly motivated activists and voters. So pitch me on this. Pitch me on what policy resolutions were adopted that would not or would have been unlikely to have been adopted under a Tom Mulcair oh, NDP. this is actually pretty easy. Uh, free tuition, for sure. That's it? Um, I think the milder Palestine resolution that passed uh, on labeling would have also not passed under a Mulcair NDP. Okay, you've got, you got two. I think a lot of the economic ones on dr- or drug decriminalization would not have passed. So three. And those are three pretty big ones, Etienne. I, I'm, I'm saying this not knowing what resolutions <laughs> oh, passed, okay. really. Um, uh, there I'm were just... a couple. I mean, a lot of these conventions are, like, pretty much just motherhood and apple pie kind of stuff where everyone just, like, feels good about it. Uh, there was one of cooperatives that passed. Uh, that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, no. I mean, a lot of it was pretty, like, feel-good kind of stuff, but that's pretty typical for policy conventions. Typically what you have is you have, like, 80% pretty feel-good stuff, 15% mildly controversial things and then five percent just like things that people like nearly come to blows on the floor about uh that in this case uh was the palestine resolution uh which was defeated in prioritization um on friday morning so how convention works is uh writing associations submit policy resolutions these then go before a committee of what's the federal council which is the sort of governing body of the ndp which is elected every couple of years um at convention actually so each regional caucus elects its councillors uh, and then of course there are sort of party officers that are ex officio members of the federal council so the committee of the federal council that decides on prioritization that's sort of led by the national director of the party who's kind of just like the chief executive officer of the party though not the leader um and then that goes to convention on the friday morning which is held over a weekend which is always which it always is. I feel like you're explaining how the stonemasons work right now. <laughs> Masons, yeah. Um, who calls them the stonemasons? Is that the, the Freemasons? That's the Simpsons joke. Isn't it? Oh, oh, no, it's stonecutters! Stonecutters! Stone stone you messed that one up, dude. Uh, that's okay. 
so on the Friday morning, and this is typically one of the most contentious parts of convention, because typically what the federal council will do is it'll put contentious things near the bottom. Then activists who submitted them will try to get them placed near the top in the prioritization panels. Typically, these are kind of sparsely attended because a lot of people haven't made it to town yet. And that determines what makes it to the floor. So there is a big fight about the Palestine resolution um, in the prioritization panel. It narrowly was defeated, so stayed very low, which means that it wouldn't be discussed. Uh, and then there was a milder one that was sort of party approved that made it through the process and was relatively high. That was discussed the Saturday evening and provoked quite a bit of controversy because the people who wanted the more stringent resolution were very mad about it and sort of staged a protest uh, on the convention floor and gave several impassioned speeches. Uh, and ultimately that one did pass, the sort of milder one. So that was sort of the, the big fight of convention. I actually missed it. Uh, I was out having a drink with a friend of the show, Evan Belgord, who was in town uh, yes. uh, to cover a far-right protest in Ottawa on Sunday. Uh, so, whoops, <laughs> I guess I, I just completely missed that, but, uh, that's okay. The rest of convention is pretty fun. Uh, I guess, what were your takeaways from convention? Um, I think it's, you know, policy-wise, it's, there's been a definite shift. Like, as I said, there were some policies that definitely would not have passed under the, the previous administration, um, which is a good thing. I think I, I'm pretty happy about all the ones that did, um, yeah, I, I, it's encouraging. The speech was good. A uh, lot of nods to public ownership, which, you know, I found I found nice. Did you get a selfie? I did not, actually. I did not. I, might, I may have been one of the very, very few people who didn't. You messed up. I did. You messed yeah. up. So that was the NDP convention. Do you have any other, any other questions you think people would be interested in knowing about? I don't really know what's interesting to people. I mean, can you tell me about the culture? Do people, like, identify openly as, like, communists versus socialists are there sort of like what are what are the factions at i mean convention? you don't really get communists so there's probably some people who would be very happy saying that i don't know i think most people if pressed who are like of the sort of like left persuasion would say they're socialists uh and then you have people who are pragmatic social democrats um and you have people in between so you have liberals socialists and something else and and people who... i think you have pretty sincere like post-war social democrats are there any sort of quirky groups of people oh well there's like who, who are the most out there people okay so there's there's the ndp socialist caucus which i joke has been the worst thing for socialism since j edgar hoover <laughs> uh because they are like a crank they're basically a cult they're basically a cult with um barry wise letter who's famous for his uh his speeches uh to convention in fact he challenged the agenda at the very beginning of convention which is sort of a ritual he goes through an mp joked to me that uh should he he die uh the party should basically get a hologram of him to sort of do the, <laughs> the ritual challenging of the agenda every convention um so yeah uh he yeah they're they're pretty cranky and even most self-declared socialists don't really like them or, or care for their methods uh, so there you go Good. I, yeah. I feel like I'm an insider now. <laughs> that, that's the kind of analysis you get from I here. can blend right in. So, the, the saga of our friend Patrick Brown has continued over the course of this week. <laughs> yeah, he really seems to be determined to take the ship down with him, doesn't he? I mean, yes. I, I don't think it is so much only take the ship down with him. I think it is 100% an attempt at rehabilitating his own image. 
Um, to the extent where Patrick Brown is a reasonably young 45-something-year-old man. Yeah, he's got many more trips to India left in him. (laughs) Yes. And if he leaves politics under the shadow of these allegations, particularly uh, when people are conflating uh, the allegations against him uh, with the allegations against Rick Dykstra, I think it becomes incredibly hard for him to ever get a job ever, ever again. Yeah, in sort of prestige fields, let's add. I I mean, yes, I'm yeah. by, I'm not referring to Starbucks. I'm although, just saying. Although it might even be difficult for him to get a job at Starbucks. Well, I, I, I just, um, I, make this, I make this point because you have people saying, oh, his life is over. Or like, oh, his life is completely ruined. It's like, no, he just doesn't have access to the sort of like prestige and power that he would have had otherwise. Like, that's not someone's like... He's not being sent to a gulag, people. Like, he, he has, you know, like... No, I don't, I'm not even saying this. I just... Some people have observed this in, online in a, in and other places. sympathetic I, I know you're not saying this. I just want to push back at that sort of sentiment sure. that is out there. Um, so, basically, his play here is to go all in. The media spotlight's on you. It's not going to be on you when someone else wins the leadership. Right. Now is your time to grab as much spotlight as you can. And change public perception of you as much as you possibly can yeah. before it turns away. Do you think he's helping himself? Do I think he's helping himself? Yes. Do you think he's actually coming off better? Um, I think he is broadly not to. Oh God, this actually, I'm, I'm not a hundred percent. So it's it's not an unequivocal yes. It's a yes with some reservations. Fair enough. I think he is throwing enough doubt and enough disper- uh, aspersions on. The integrity this, of anybody else. On the integrity of the story around him. Yeah. Um, one, of, one of the other podcasts I listen to calls it the fog of Trump. Yeah. Which is that if you have a thousand stories a day, no one's really sure what's going on. But people sort of get a sense that, like, maybe you're not guilty Well, and there, there's always, like, a sort of impulse in reporting, too, to report both sides. So, like, it, there's typically, like, people can really exploit this tendency. And exploit this tendency in people who have been trained by media to think, oh, there's two sides to everything. That, you know, you can sort of just sow enough, yeah, as you say, a fog of doubt. Of yeah. And, and a Trumpy doubt fog. So if we look on National News Watch, for anyone unfamiliar with it, it's sort of Ottawa's primary uh, news aggregator. And annoying Twitter accounts. <laughs> Boom. Yeah. Um, so right now, all the top stories are about Patrick Brown. Yeah. Um, we could enumerate the developments that have happened since our last podcast. I which... think there's literally stuff ongoing as we record. Yeah, <laughs> like he's in a session with the Ontario PC Gr- Greenlight Committee. Greenlight Committee. <laughs> so. Um, so there is an enormous amount that has happened on this file in a week and that's exactly how this sort of strategy works the fog of trump is to overwhelm people with information but you know the the key information that he wants out there is out there and that's the ones casting doubt on the initial allegations and initial stories yeah even though people have sort of said that he's confused details and yeah Yeah, i anyway not not to go into the minutiae of what (laughs) has been alleged versus what he has said is incorrect and go back and forth but that's his play right now. Yeah. And, yeah. and he's, he's playing that book. So the one thing I want to talk we, we've gone longer because I think the Supercluster thing took more time than we thought it would. But uh, that's fine. That, that was a good <laughs> I discussion. I think we the connected and automated vehicle <laughs> discussion. <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I want to talk about something I found today while doing some research, uh, which is probably one of the just funniest things I have found in a while. And it, it open can, open.canada.ca is the, Canada, is the government of Canada's open government portal. 
of it includes course. lots of information that is, is free for the public to look at. You can request, for example, complete, completed access information requests to sort of get those sent to you. Uh, look at, you know, the kind of money that government spends on different things, proactive disclosures, government contracts, all fun things. One thing I discovered today is there's a database of acts of founded wrongdoing, which is basically when a public servant uh, just does something grievously wrong, illegal, or mismanages something to just an absurd degree. Uh, that and, it breaches an act of parliament. Yeah. That, that's one of the criteria, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So, so breach an act of parliament, I think, is yes. a fancy and, way of saying breaks the law. Yes. So on, I just have to read this one because it's just too crazy to be believed. <laughs> this is from uh, quarter three of 2015. Uh, and I'm amazed. I don't know if journalists know this exists, but if, if I, I suspect they don't. I've never heard of so this. It's so funny. And I've never seen stories referred. It's just a shame all of these are old. But uh, anyway, so here's one from Veterans Affairs Canada. A disclosure received under the Public Service Disclosure Protection Act involved allegations that two employees were improperly using government equipment to arrange for the purchases and pickups of illegal substances during work hours. The organization immediately took action and promptly launched an investigation. The investigation revealed that the two employees were, in fact, using government time and email to arrange for the purchase and pickup of illegal substances during work hours. Unreal. Recommendations and corrective measures. The investigation recommended that disciplinary measures be taken. The recommended corrective measures have been taken. <laughs> this is it's open to the imagination to wonder what that is. This is so it. open and transparent. I note that on the covering page it says names will be disclosed. If needed. If needed. And I don't believe any of the like seven or eight postings here no, they disclose not. a single name. No, they, they only named if it is impossible to describe the event without it, basically. I, I can't imagine a circumstances in which... Yeah, it's, it would require the naming of the individual to describe the buying of illegal drugs uh, during work yes. hours in a work truck, presumably. Indeed. So it's actually kind of interesting. Just the, the, these are sort of the, the catalog of petty crimes committed <laughs> by public servants, really. So we read the one from Veterans Affairs Canada. There's one from Environment and Climate Change Canada, where one guy was basically running an online business during work hours that sort of used like implied a connection to Environment and Climate Change Canada. So he was reprimanded for that. Oh. And the other six I was are... really hoping you were going to say it was Bitcoin mining. I oh was, my god. I was like 10 out of 10. Someone please be mining Bitcoin on their computers. That would admittedly be very funny. Um, the other six, interestingly enough, of the eight are from National Defense and are mostly graft. So there's one where they improperly sourced a contract to someone related to them without you know competitive bidding process. And another one where someone was uh, got a short-term help consulting contract that was like five times the market rate Ooh, so spicy yes so i didn't those were the ones i read anyway it is fun um open canada or open.canada.ca uh acts of founded wrongdoing it is very very funny give it a read uh you had a final cannabis update to give oh yeah just to you know keep keep the train going on this file so people sort of get a full picture the autonomous truck convoy then <laughs> yes so people get a full picture of sort of the legislative cycle here um there have been more updates on the cannabis file uh in provinces uh alberta uh credit to the ndp government there released Ooh. some of the details of their cannabis retail system and it looks remarkably like the alberta 
uh, liquor retail system. So, yeah, I don't think they could stray too far off. So on that one. full points to them. <laughs> um, very impressed with them on this file. Um, I would note more interestingly on the federal file that the uh, late last week, uh, Peter Harder, who is the government representative in the Senate, basically Peter two Peter Harder. Sorry. <laughs> basically the government's point man in the senate on everything um struck a grand bargain with the isg with the liberals um isg being independent senators group and the conservative senators um to agree on a timeline for the passage of c45 oh interesting so um so a lot of the doubt has or a significant amount of doubt has now been removed and c45 seems to be on track uh, not necessarily on track for the July deadline. Um, but what's really interesting about this, uh, they lay out some dates. The final uh, or the third reading vote on the bill will be on June 7th. Um, but more interestingly, it's going to be studied by five committees. Wow. Five. Five Senate committees. Yeah. Five. Count them five. Wow. In sort of what's uh, sort of parallels uh, how committees study the BIA, although there are some small differences. Uh, the BIA being the Budget Implementation Act. Um, the bill is getting farmed out to the Indigenous Affairs Committee um, to look at um, components of legislation yes. that will impact Indigenous people. Pedantic point. I think the one in the Senate is called the Aboriginal Peoples Committee. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, pedantic point. Granted. So, yeah. Granted, yeah. sure. Um, it's going to SECTI, uh, which is the Senate Committee on National Defense and Security. Okay. Um which is going to look at the... Uh, I would imagine the sort of public safety angles on this. No, it's not. I think it is the... I'm trying to remember which one's which. So the Foreign Affairs and International Trade Committee is looking at the... Oh, SECTI is doing border thickening. Okay. Um, I, yeah. Sorry, so, just laughing at the idea of a thick border. <laughs> <laughs> Commonly used industry term. Is looking at the thickening of the border because of Ameri- concerns of how Americans are going to treat travelers at the border. Um, Foreign Affairs and International Trade is looking at the international treaty ramifications of it. Okay, because there are like UN conventions. There's and, like, three UN stuff, treaties, which yeah. Canada's a party to, um, that have been, you know, flagged particularly by conservatives. Um, I think. A lot of people said it's not going to be a big deal. I'm, well, I mean, too, Uruguay too has sort of just it. done this and it's been fine. That, that's less, sort of how, so, how yeah. everyone feels about it, that you yeah. can sort of just... I mean, it's a UN treaty. Let's <laughs> <Like, laughs> be real. That you can sort of squeeze your way through it without too much concern. Um, the last one, I had them all lined up earlier. Oh, Legal and Constitutional Affairs Committee um, is going to look at basically all the legal components, the criminal code components of the bill. Okay. And then the main one that's going to oversee basically the work of these four committees is the Social Affairs Committee. Okay. Um, so they're going to bring it home. Oof. And so all four of these committees, interestingly, will table a report back to the Senate themselves, not to the other committee. Okay. And then that committee will simultaneously do its own study, see the results, and then write up a final report. Correct me if I'm wrong. There's undoubtedly some overlapping membership on these committees. Likely. Yeah, I mean, most senators serve on two or three committees. So, Likely. Yeah, that seems like that that could be very interesting. Why? I don't know, just because it would be, uh, like, they'll definitely have the information from the other committees as they do it, so it'll be, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's about the formal mechanism, yeah, right? I, typically, like, a member of parliament will serve on, like, one or two. Yes. And typically those things do not do the same legislation at the same time, so... That'll be very different from the typical experience someone in the House of Commons would get. I don't know. Just just thinking about it. The, the alternative there is that 
say the Social Affairs Committee. No, I totally get it. It's, would, it's a really huge bill. I'm just sort of interested in sort of how no, it looks. No, what I was going to say, it's just farming it out, though, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's like your legal work is over here, and here you're looking at bigger picture things. Yeah, so it's like, makes sense. Eh. Speaking of uh, UN treaties and thick borders, uh, have you ever heard of the Netherlands Invasion Act? Yes, I have. Oh, that's one of my favorite the things. The Yeah, yeah. So for anyone who doesn't, this is totally random, but for anyone who doesn't know, uh, the Netherlands Invasion Act was passed in the early 2000s under the Bush administration in the U.S., uh, it basically says that should any American soldier ever be put on trial in The Hague for war crimes, that the U.S. automatically declare war on the Netherlands and, like, get that troop out of there. Bring that boy home. Bring that war crime boy home. <laughs> Leave no man behind. I think it actually has... Um, I can't wait for the inevitable movie for when that inevitably happens. <laughs> to, to speak to the merits of We the don't policy. need to. It's just <laughs> okay, funny. Fine. Fine. <laughs> It's bad. I mean, it's bad. Anyway, uh, that will do it for us this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at ShortPantsPod. Um, you can listen to our back catalog, which is fun and good, and you, you will find a lot in there to enjoy. Check out Looney Politics from time to time. Indeed, uh, do so. Um, this episode is produced, as always, by me. Uh, I never say that, but I just kind of <laughs> throw that in there today. Uh, so that's who you yell at for the poor quality. Uh, so that'll do it, and... Uh, have a good one. Bye-bye. We'll just do a quick sound check here. You're going to make a high-pitched noise as always, which actually doesn't help the sound check at all. <laughs>